Hey everyone, thank you for tuning in to The Sediment, the official ASPN conference podcast. This is the first virtual ASPN conference, and although we aren't together and are exhausted after a long day of Zoom talks, we hope this podcast can provide you an opportunity to filter all the information you've received and come away with little pellets of knowledge, The Sediment. This is Saturday, May 1st, 2021. Let's take a listen. All right. So everybody, my name is Charu Gupta. I uh, I work at Children's National in Washington, D.C. I'm also the fellowship program director there. And today we have esteemed guests with us who are going to talk about the different sessions that happen today at the PS. Um, so we're going to start by introducing our panelists. And my name is uh, Dave Selesky. I'm a, P- I'm a pediatric nephrologist down at the Medical University of South Carolina. Um, with a love for critical care nephrology. Um, And uh, the fun fact about me is I have developed a pretty good running joke about uh, my lack of a Twitter account. And I think that was actually the number one pointed question today at the Q&A by a long shot this morning. I think I got a solid 500 points for that. Spend more points until you get that account. Hi everyone, this is Shaina Menon. I'm an assistant professor of pediatrics at Seattle Children's Hospital and the University of Washington. I'm also the medical director of our acute renal therapies program. Uh, fun fact about myself, I had um, prepared this assuming Stella was going to be on the call today. So I was a fourth year fellow uh, doing acute care nephrology at Cincinnati when Stella was a first year fellow. And uh, she used to joke about how uh, in my future, like my USP for finding a job would be to try and connect every extracorporeal machine with each other as much as could be possible. <laughs> and I feel like that is what I do now as an acute wow. care nephrologist, try to connect different machines with each other. That's awesome. Thank you. Thank you for taking the time to be here with us today. Um, so Dave and Shaina are going to talk to us about, um, about the updates in cutting-edge critical care nephrology. Hi, my name is Carrie Drake. I'm an assistant professor at UT Southwestern in Dallas, Texas, and I have very few fun facts, but am, am quickly learning the importance of having a Twitter handle, so I need to reactivate my account. And now, as a moderator navigating the question and answer session, I understand all the comments about Dr. Saluski's lack of a Twitter account. <laughs> Hi, I'm Jackie Ho. I'm at uh, the University of Pittsburgh. I also run the pediatric fellowship program there and has, have had a long-term interest in kidney development. So it was great to moderate the session today. Um, fun fact about me, um, at one point I had wanted to be an astronaut growing up and managed to work in a medical student elective at the Kennedy Space Center as part of that, but I fairly quickly realized that pediatric nephrology was the way to go. So here I am. Wow, some transition from that to pediatric nephrology. It's it's their loss, definitely. (laughs) It's because nephrologists are smarter than astronauts. (laughs) So Dr. Drake and Dr. Ho are going to talk to us about management of CACOD from genetics to optimizing nephron function. And then last, but definitely uh, the the most prominent speaker of the day, Dr. Mahan. Well, thank you, Charu. So my name is John Mann. I'm a professor of pediatrics at The Ohio State University College of Medicine. Uh, David, I wanted to get that the in there just for you. So, and um, uh, fun facts. Well, we have eight children. I'm not, not, not everyone would count that as fun. And I've had a Twitter handle for about five years, David. So I, I, you know, didn't feel like I had a choice, but uh, I think I'll land with, you know, I've been at the same institution for 37 years and uh, I wish you all the opportunity to have such a good job and a good group of people to work with that you stay at your institution for years and years. (laughs) Wonderful. Wonderful to have you all on and we're looking forward to a great session tonight. Absolutely. Thank you, everybody. I first met Dr. Mann uh, my first year 
as an attending physician when I was at Buffalo. And I think it was the first or second PNRC meeting at yes. least. <laughs> I was blown away by the facility and and how welcoming and kind you were to me. Oh, yeah, wow. and I would second that. So I met Dr. Dr. Mehan in my first year uh, in Miami at the pathology conference. And mm-hmm. um, and yes, I mean, you know, anybody who has who has been a fellow or a trainee in the last 15 years or so um, yeah. has benefited immensely uh, from Dr. Mehan's mentorship and teaching. Well, thank, thank you. you. I absolutely have been as lucky as well. I, I met him very early on during my PNRC or Mid- Midwest Consortium days um, yes. when I was a fellow. Um, and then also at um, the, the meeting um, in Miami, I believe it was, with yes. uh, our RRI meeting, the, 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 the dialysis meeting down there too with Dr. Ferris. And so. Well, and I've had the good fortune to, to be able to be on several uh, publications with David and, and see him uh, grow and, and develop and prosper. So it's been really, really neat. And it is, it is the best part of this career to see patients do well and grow and prosper. And then to see young faculty, uh, fellows, faculty get a chance to develop and, and do all the great things you're all doing now. So it's wonderful. Thank you. And, and obviously a very well-deserved uh, department award. Many, many congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> All right, so so Dr. Mehan, there were a few sessions this morning or this afternoon as well at the PAS around medical education, you know, especially focusing on diversity, inclusion, equity, um, and of course, uh, burnout and wellness as it pertains to the ongoing pandemic. Um, so please share with us some thoughts around these issues um, and how can fellowship programs, uh, small and big, can deal with, um, you know, especially burnout wellness and how to promote uh, resilience, you know, amongst our trainees. Wonderful, thanks, Charu. So, yeah, so um, one of the presentations earlier today was by uh, Lanessa Zuniga, and actually uh, a disclaimer, Lanessa is part of our Pediatric Resident Burnout and Resilience Study Consortium, uh, which is a group that I had the opportunity to uh, co-found with Manish Batra from Seattle Children's uh, about five, six years ago now. And Lanessa was part of doing a, st- a survey of our residents in early 2020 in the midst of COVID. And for the last six years, we've been conducting a survey of residents around burnout and stress and resilience and other factors, particularly in the learning environment that's impacting them. And For several years, back 2016 to 2018, about 50% of pediatric residents across the country were burned out by conventional criteria. And this is, these are lovely pediatricians in pediatric resident programs with all these lovely people to work with and they were stressed and burned out. In 2019, the incidence was 40%. and, And I think with the attention to burnout, Certainly programs have been doing things to address burnout among their residents and and also looking at, in particular, the learning environment that our trainees uh, work in. So when COVID happened, the thought was no one has time for a survey, you know, we can't do this. But but we started getting um, uh, emails from our 51 sites saying, I think we should do it. This is really important. And bottom line is 19 of our 51 sites we're able to pull it off. And, and Lanessa Zuniga from uh, uh, Baylor, Texas Children's Hospital, uh, had a chance to lead this. And interestingly, uh, burnout was less during the first several months of COVID, which, which again, to me, says uh, why you have to measure these things. Assumptions being what they are, we assumed it would be horrible and the stress would be off the charts. And uh, what uh, Lanessa found in these 1,500 or so residents who completed the survey was that burnout was related to being worried about the effects of the pandemic on their family. It was related to their concern about the effects of, of COVID on their training. And lastly, it also was related to um, the fact that their workload uh, if they felt like their workload had increased, they were more likely to be burned out. All the kind of things you would expect. But what we found was that that the resilience uh, and the levels of burnout were actually better than what we typically saw. 
Uh, so I think, again, it just to me highlights that, that we need to measure these things to know them. And it really has opened up some fascinating other hypotheses. And Lanessa ended her presentation talking about the, the classic kind of response of individuals, particularly professionals, to a crisis. And there is this heroic phase and this honeymoon phase um, when, when you're called to do something and it's important and everyone's supporting each other. And even though it's terribly difficult and the workload is high, everyone bands together. Um, uh, and we suspect that that's what was going on with, with our, our trainees at that time, that we were really catching them during that phase. And it really shows how our trainees can band together and do really important things for patients and, and continue to be resilient despite all that stress. So it'll be interesting. Uh, we're surveying our pediatric residents right now. So it'll be interesting to see where people land now um, compared to where they were a year ago. So a second study related to burnout that's maybe a little closer to home in terms of our fellows was a study that came from uh, Melissa Kilberg and Anna Weiss at CHOP. And they did a qualitative study of fellows at CHOP, uh, asking them about the factors that were related to burnout in, in their personal experience. And they actually talked to 43 different fellows and 24 different fellowship programs, so a very representative set. And what they found was that the fellows endorsed the things that stressed them to the feeling of being emotionally exhausted and depersonalized could really be put into two buckets, the you know, avoidable, so to speak, factors and non-avoidable. So in particular, avoidable factors were the administrative burden, the sort of uh, imbalance of workforce and workload, the lack of transparent expectations about what they were supposed to do, the technology burden, and lastly, the schedules, scheduling challenges. So these were things that, that they felt, that the authors felt could potentially be amenable to effort. The unavoidable, so to speak, were the work-life conflicts that the fellows um, endorsed, um, and also the sort of inherent demands of medicine. And I would argue those are, those are modifiable. The, they may be difficult to deal with, but I think one of our challenges with our trainees is to really have them intentionally think about their work-life balance and to be more of an active participant in what they take on in their medical profession rather than to feel a victim to what, what is going on. Uh, so I think that was an interesting sort of extension uh, now. And it's really the first uh, study looking at these factors among pediatric fellows that, that's been uh, uh, presented at a national meeting. Yeah, that was really interesting because, you know, at our center, we also had, um, you know, all the fellows surveyed with regards to wellness, um, you know, especially in the middle of the pandemic. And, you know, our, um, you know, some of the some of the factors that you mentioned trainees are worried about, uh, you know, from Vanessa's paper is also something that came up at our institution. So, you know, things about worrying about their family and, you know, worrying about, uh, you know, how it will affect their training overall. Yeah. Um, so I think that is across the board, uh, you know, something trainees have felt. Um, and then did, no, did they talk Charu, the other thing is also that I think this year has been extraordinarily stressful on international medical graduates and we do have a lot of those amongst our ranks as fellows yeah. and so I think that that those unique challenges that they face visa situation things like yeah. that also added on with the COVID stress and the travel bans and all of that impacted I think everything that goes on in the country and the world uh, mm -hmm. it gets amplified when you're a trainee because yeah. it's future. Okay. Yeah, and, and Sutha, you know, it's interesting because the, felt, the residents were more concerned about the effects of COVID on their family than themselves. Um, so, uh, and, you know, that may speak to the omnipotence of youth and, and the feeling like, oh, I can handle it. But, <laughs> but I think the important point, as you said, is that our trainees are really affected by what's going on outside of, of their work and, and their families and particularly the international med grads. We have to recognize that and, and talk about it with them, give them a chance to uh, talk about it. And, and, you know, when necessary, have, have uh, other people uh, really um, help them reconcile these issues. Yeah. 
I think an interesting, a potential interesting way to look at it, having seen or talked to different folks too in residency programs about how it was handled early on, um, especially when things like outpatient clinics were closed um, uh, and subspecialty rotations were gone and those sorts of things. I think one of the other things to look at or to consider, I'm sure you are, is different models of what people did in terms of shift work versus, so how did residents' workload change during a time when we expect them to be more stressed, but they weren't? Mm -hmm. Potentially, yeah. there's another yeah, explanation. I, so so there may be things to, to learn from that in terms yeah. of- It's almost like a natural experiment, right, David? There were right. so many different things being done to be able to peel that back and see where that is. And so, for example, we have those 19 different centers that participated, and we can look at what the different centers did in response to COVID uh, and look at that. Exactly. What I'm getting from all of these studies is that um, there are modifiable factors. That's the first thing that I think we should focus on as a community of educators. Yeah. And that also that it's not, the answer is never more yoga. It's never more like resilience training for the person who is under stress. I think there are systemic things that have to be changed. And that's what we need to focus on as a community. I don't know if you all agree as panelists. Well, you know, uh, we Colin West at Mayo has done a recent systemic review of interventions to address burnout. And it's interesting because those self practices like yoga for example, typically when done well, decrease burnout rates by 10%. So if there are 50% of the residents are burned out, it drops to 40%. That's not a zero response. Those, those 10 out of 100 that benefited got real benefit. But, but beyond that, we have to recognize that that, that only helped 10% of the population. And in his systematic review, he points out that system interventions have a much bigger impact. So you're right, Sutha. It, uh, I think we want to um, not neglect personal factors and, and things like self-care, but we have to recognize that there's a much bigger bang for the intervention, the buck, so to speak, when you look at the systemic issues and try to address those. So a lot of things to think about for program directors everywhere. Yes. Some of this could be, you know, like uh, how we talk about uh, selecting uh, in, say, for example, AKI studies or something like, you know, selecting the population where certain interventions might work. Maybe for burnout as well, like you need to, like not everyone has the same underlying reason yes. for burnout. So we need to identify like subsets who have specific reasons and yeah. then provide them that intervention instead of just a blanket one uh, solution for everyone. You're, you are so right, Shine. It really calls for personalized uh, uh, training, right? And, and personalized care, so to speak. Yes. So Dr. Mayan, what are you looking forward to for the rest of the conference? What other talks have caught your attention? Well, I think there's some interesting stuff still to come around some of the curricular interventions. And I think one of the things that we have to all recognize in pediatric nephrology is the, the most likely innovations in education uh, that are going to help our trainees are going to come from outside of pediatric nephrology. They're going to be projects or, or studies that are involving other discipline fellows or trainees in, in, um, in uh, different levels. So I think we have to kind of constantly look at those and and really look for what are things that look promising, that look like they might particularly apply to our pediatric nephrology fellows. So I'm particularly interested in two things. One is the issue of, of orientation and um, helping trainees get a good start. Uh, we recognize that pediatric nephrology is complicated. And many of the residents that are graduating have had limited exposure to pediatric nephrology, even, even in the best of programs, they may have a couple months. So um, we recognize that our new fellows uh, struggle with the workload and the complexity and you know, 18 patients uh, you know, on, the, on the service. And so I think there's some good work being done in, in a, a variety of areas in other disciplines looking at how to better uh, orient and use things like simulation and sort of advanced training to get people uh, ready when they start. 
And then the last thing I would mention is to recognize there's some good things coming up uh, about um, the uh, impact, uh, the likely impact of bias uh, in, in, in how we uh, evaluate our trainees and how we regard our trainees. Uh, Megan Trites, for example, from Colorado, uh, showed some data, not surprising perhaps, but in the medical students in pediatrics at Colorado Children's, the underrepresented in medicine individuals had lower evaluations and lower grades than the uh, not underrepresented in medicine evaluations. And I think uh, they're beginning to dive into that and look for what are some of the explanations for that. But I think a lot of us would feel that that's what's happening, but I really commend them for looking at that. So there's gonna be more uh, discussion at this meeting about the impact of bias and the impact of just uh, literally equity and disparities among, among learners, students, and trainees in medicine and pediatrics. So, so I think there's gonna be some neat stuff coming out of that. Along those lines, talking about education and trainees, if I could just put in a plug for the session tomorrow, Sunday at three o'clock, we have a ASPN resident student trainee session with panelists of faculty nephrologists, you know, to help try to create that sense of community and bring people together who are interested in this career path. Absolutely, Kerry. We'll put that on the calendar, everybody. And that should be really the focus for our community because we've gone through like, and well, if I can use a word that has been overused this year, unprecedented times. And uh, just as uh, the country was waking up to issues of equity and diversity, and uh, you know, we've also in our community woken up to that. Um, and I, I applaud everything that we, uh, all the researchers are doing to try to get to the um, basis or maybe some solutions, if you will, for these problems that continue to plague us. So, we will now change tracks a little bit and get into the K-Cut pa panel session because we wanna keep Dave and Shaina waiting until the end. <laughs> Sorry, just, just, uh, just gonna take it out on Dave. I, I will, I will, I'll, I'll give your, uh, your, your contact to my, my kids that are out playing. <laughs> Anytime, it is always- They're gonna be up late tonight. Dave, it's always better in the upstate, okay? Oh, so. yeah. <laughs> it, is, it is absolutely beautiful up there, I'll tell you. It's a running joke in South Carolina, upstate versus the coast, so. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so Charu, take it away. All right, so moving on to Cathode. Thank you, Dr. Mehan. So uh, we have Dr. Drake and Dr. Jacqueline Ho, who are gonna talk to us about how do we move from uh, you know, doing genetics for, for CAT code to optimizing nephron function. I think it would be particularly interesting for our clinicians uh, would be, uh, you know, who do we order the gene testing for and whether it is available or not and how expensive it might be and what might be the routes, um, uh, you know, to get such testing done. Thank you. Um, yeah, so I thought Dr. Indragupta gave a fantastic review of really highlighting an approach of how to think about it and sort of tease out because there really isn't a one size fits all plan and approach to these patients. So she really did a fantastic review of highlighting those cases where it is critical to think about and send the genetic testing versus times when you can sort of get yourself into more trouble by sending testing rather than it being helpful. So um, I, her talk was fantastic and I thought she did a great job of um, really talking through the approach to that. And Carrie, you know, one of the beauties of this virtual format is um, that talk's going to be available for a while, right? So I, I think even to be able to talk to our trainees and our, our colleagues and say, well, this is a, this is a great presentation by Indra Gupta. You, you might want to take a look, listen to it. Yes, absolutely. And I think Dr. Pinsk is coming back on the last day of the conference to kind of walk us through the you know, intricacies of how long these talks will be available and how we can access them. So I think that's great for this format. But um, are, you, are you all just generally ordering KCUT panels on your patients? What, what's everyone doing? I personally, um, I personally am not yet at this point um, and not... Uh, just have not have not gone to it yet, I must say. 
him here not ordering a panel per se but uh, more focused uh, testing if right. there is something specific uh, the panels are uh, like dr gupta mentioned like you know um, some of the commercially available ones we don't know a uh, lot of details about them and then what if they find things that you don't have an answer for how do you deal with that in a young child so yeah, I, things which might change the management i look for them but uh, one and it, and it, to me, and this is probably means I'm underutilizing it. To be fair, um, I also I'm often looking for the plus one, so the the additional finding that would suggest right. something that you know that hits the spidey sense or whatever, um, in terms of the either the clinical course is not what you would expect it to be, or there's other findings that would be consistent with something that you know you know shows up on your sort of characteristics and that's usually my trigger um to do that um but you know I, the, the other good question is is um we have a, a genetics group here um that we actually send folks to um who know yeah. the answers to those questions so what is the sensitivity and and it's not necessarily they work with the university but they're also separate from the university as well and as soon as you're familiar with them um, but that to me is important to get around some of the challenges that were discussed because they know the answers to those questions. They know what's on which panels and, you know, you're not checking a box and, in, in, you know, somebody gets a bill or something that's extraordinary and those sorts of things. And, and Sutha, I predict that many of our patients being born today will get a genetic study sometime between the ages of 18 and 25 because they're going to want to know. And yeah. as they move into the time yeah. when they're thinking of child mm -hmm. rearing, yeah. child creating and child rearing, uh, I think the technology will be better also. Uh, but but I, I suspect that um, they're gonna want that answer as they get older. But it, I think it's, it, it's an important point though too, right? Is that they're gonna be the ones to make the choice to want to know that answer, which they, or 17, I think that's fantastic. If you absolutely want to know as you're preparing to have a, a, a child or or whatever you want to know in life. Not at 17. Once you've become an adult, an adult and you can say, I really want to know the answer to this, right? And you, 18, whatever, 19. <laughs> as a, as you, <laughs> and I David, think remember how long it took our prefrontal cortexes to mature as guys, right? I'm just saying. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> well, why don't you uh, jump into this conversation? No. Sure. No, I was just going to say that I think that speaks to, like, in the select cases that I offer that we sort of order it, we usually do it in collaboration with our medical genetics colleagues for those reasons, because they're just better equipped than we are to kind of counsel our families about, you know, what do these variants of unknown significance mean? And then what do sort of um, the SNPs that are associated with adult diseases mean for those individuals? And it's just many of those things are things outside of our scope typically. So I, I think Indra made a good point about, um, you know, keeping in mind that, you know, identifying mutations doesn't, sort of the phenotypic correlation isn't one-to-one -one necessarily and that the penetrance and expressivity really make a difference. Right, so we're not quite there yet clinically, but um, I thought the talk about uh, nephron number and um, if, you, if we wanna talk a little bit about the Adrian Spitzer lecture. Yeah, so it was really, um, I think, incredibly exciting to have Dr. McMahon be able to join us at PAS and talk about his research. He's been an absolute leader in the field from a kidney development standpoint. And I think today he really highlighted, um, which I think I was excited about, the basic science work and the fundamental things that we need to do, um, you know, from a basic science standpoint to understand kidney development before we can move things into uh, translational and um, patient-directed uh, type studies. So I was really excited that that is what he presented today, you know, some of the very basic work and the databases and um resources that are being put together, you know, to help uh, really the whole field move that type of research forward. And I think it was really neat to see how things had evolved because it was an honor for Carrie and I, to moderate this in honor of Dr. Spitzer and sort of remember his career through the ages as we were preparing for the introduction and 
sort of realized that we've come a long way since, you know, um, doing in vivo sort of patch clamp experiments and, and studying channels and how they develop to now single molecules and single cells in the whole kidney. And sort of seeing that progression has been, it was really neat. And I think it's so fascinating that then growing this organoid tissue in a dish is coming back to patch clamp and physiology studies to, um, you know, be able to see the function of the kidneys are some of the next challenges. Yeah. So Carrie and Jackie, if I could ask you to give us uh, maybe our trainees uh, or junior colleagues, like one insight from, you know, how to optimize the postnatal health of preterm kidney from Marissa's talk, like what would that be? And so I think the message there was a little bit related to what we were talking about for education and talking about modifiable and non-modifiable uh, risk factors and sort of realizing that preterm infants are at risk for chronic kidney disease, that um, knowing that means that we can potentially think about what are the modifiable risk factors for those individuals. So, you know, neonatal AKI and how, how can we mitigate that sort of in the immediate postnatal period and beyond as they're growing, because that clearly makes a big difference in their long-term kidney health. Um, thinking about obesity and treating sort of maternal diabetes and how do you best optimize maternal health, knowing that preterm sort of um, births are growing sort of worldwide. And so thinking about things that we can change and then realizing that there are some things that we may not be able to change. So the, I think we don't really understand most of the time why preterm births happen necessarily. So. I think the role of epigenetics is super important. And I think there's a talk on epigenetics at the PS as well. Um, so I think that is one thing that we kind of have underutilized over the past few years um, in terms of determining uh, you know, the overall health of the maternal fetal diet. The other thing I really liked about Dr. DeFrida's talk is I think she hit some of the practical, tangible, actionable things that we can think about doing now, but then also highlighted sort of those shoot for the moon, pie in the sky type things that um, we're looking toward in the future. Awesome. So talking about the future, um, uh, Jennifer's talk about using new biomarkers and technologies to identify those at risk. Uh, what would be the takeaway points from that talk? And so I think it's really exciting the work that she's doing. You know, she's moved to doing in vivo MRI imaging to be able to really get a much more precise estimate of glomerular number than we've had before. And, you know, I think many of us see in our practice, individuals with renal hypoplasia and we say you have a small kidney you know the small kidney on ultrasound and the correlation between phenotype is very broad and being able to I think better counsel um, families and their um, and the their children about sort of what children's prognoses is you know with those sort of better non-invasive imaging techniques hold a lot of promise. So when should we expect these to become clinically available <laughs> to us? We're just waiting right? <laughs> We are awaiting anxiously <laughs> mm -hmm. to get our hands on this new technology. Awesome. Um, but I thought it was a very interesting way to actually define the nephrons using the ferritin uh, markers. Uh, and, uh, you know, we've always kind of traditionally looked at ultrasound kidney sizes and just used that to assume that this is a dysplastic kidney. And it's uh, kind of interesting to think about it more like what is your functional mass rather than just what is physically present in the kidney. And I, that's what I thought was the promise of these. Like it's like, a, like the brain MRIs, which are functional PET scans. This is now like a functional kidney scan. So that's exciting. And it also strikes me how, uh, whether we're talking about uh, big kid AKI or neonatal kidney disease or nephrotic syndrome, uh, this combination of biomarkers and genetics is going to really allow us to personalize healthcare. You know, if you're a woman with breast cancer, you don't get the treatment that everyone else gets. You get individualized therapy depending on your genetics and biomarkers, right? And it's really neat. I mean, I see nephrology finally lumbering towards that kind of an approach where we can say, just because you're nephrotic doesn't mean you get prednisone, but we've done these gene tests and you have this biomarker and I'm going to start you on whatever. And I feel it's going to be the same way with these uh, potentially uh, AKI patients, K-cut patients. Uh, we're going to get more sophisticated. Yeah, I think, yeah. That was very similar to what we said almost exactly last night. <laughs> so, mm -hmm. 
So, yeah, I'll agree with you, Dr. Mann. I'll agree with you, but I'll say this, that nephrology was ahead of the game because if you, I, I'm fond of saying this to my patients that when they do a 24-hour urine for stone disease, that is personalized medicine that we are providing them. <laughs> you, so so we'll, we'll go back to uh, to Coe and his colleagues, Fred Coe, that were doing uh, Litholinks 25, yes. 30 years ago. They were personalizing okay. care. You're right. <laughs> Absolutely, absolutely, right? I mean, so we should always say that we, as nephrologists, have been at the forefront of personalized medicine. <laughs> yeah. Thank you, Carrie, and uh, thank you, Jackie, um, for your insights. Um, so should we move on to critical care nephrology now? Well, AKI is one of the preventable causes, yeah. right? For yeah. So actually, I think, I think uh, Dr. Mann's comments actually dovetail very nicely into the first talk. Um, that I was going to mention, and that's the one by Dr. Kostyist uh, from the University of Colorado, who is um, somebody who I, uh, in the essence of full disclosure, collaborate with across the board um, in a number of different multi-center studies. Um, she's a, actually a pediatric cardiologist and intensivist. Um, uh, and um, I have to say that that is one of the beauties of the working in the critical care nephrology in pediatrics is the incredible collaborative nature that we get to, I get, you know, we get to be on phone calls with cardiologists and intensivists and neonatologists and pediatric nephrologists. So that's a lot of fun. Um, and that's actually how I met Dr. Gist um, the first time with some of our collaborations. And so she um, has done a lot of work, um, as you might imagine, in cardiac associated AKI um, and where um, we talked about yesterday on the pod, or this morning, I guess, whatever, on the podcast um, about this idea of now we have proven that AKI is a bad thing. Um, I think everybody agrees that it occurs commonly now. And then you don't, you don't die with AKI. AKI contributes independently toward your adverse outcomes. I think that nail has been hammered into the ground um, by um a number of people that put forth a lot of effort. So now the next move is exactly what Dr. Mann just alluded to, uh, where we begin to define the phenotype um, and define how we better uh, look at folks with AKI because creatinine is still a crummy biomarker. It's still a biomarker of damage that's already done. Um, as you know, uh, Dr. Gist and I joked about, we don't wait until your injection fraction is 10% before we treat a heart attack. That's the, that, that ship sailed. You never would win anything that way. And so now the, her talk today was focused on some of the newer biomarkers that we can use to identify these patients we know that are going to develop clinically severe AKI. Um, and as funny as it sounds, we started with, and, and she started talking about urine as a biomarker, right? Because um, yeah. urine itself in these large studies, because we had the numbers and did it systematically, being able to measure and quantify urine output identifies folks with AKI that would be missed by serum creatinine. Okay, so that's a critical point when we're pulling, as we're starting to talk about pulling Foley's on patients and things like that, then you say, okay, you know, not saying you don't do that, but it's like, okay, we got to be able to measure that, right? And then we started, uh, and then there was discussions about different phenotypes of AKI, creatinine-based, urine output-based, those sorts of things. So starting to think about that phenotypic variation. Um, and then we moved on to the biomarkers, right? So the million, the, the, the thing we've all sort of discussed about, okay, and risk stratification. So the renal angina concept, okay, uh, which is a fantastic concept. I love the term. Um, and pediatricians have really been driving that ship. So identifying somebody within 12 hours in China, or Dr. Menon has done work on this as well um, with some of her work at Cincinnati and some of the chair up work um, which is a wonderfully named study that I, I don't remember what CHAIRUP stands for, but it's a wonderfully named study. Um, and, and, and this idea of developing uh, renal angina to predict who's going to have the kidney attack or, you know, not heart attack, the kidney attack, right? And then you use a biomarker to drive your treatment and drive where you're going to go. And I think that's at the heart of what Dr. Gis talked about. Um, and she looked at it in different populations in different ways and did a very good job. I was just going to say that it was the study was called the AKI Cherub. It was acute kidney injury in children evaluation by renal angina and urinary biomarkers. But yep. 
quite the mouthful. It was quite a mouthful, but it goes by it goes by cherub, and these are little cherubs who are out there looking out for your kidney health. But I, yeah, and it, it was it's a wonderfully done study. But I think that this and and, Kat and Dr. Gist's talk um, sort of really hammered that point home. Perfect. Yes, we are still looking for the ideal biomarker, but I think the, the takeaway is that, you know, we have to at least get the low hanging fruit. I mean, measuring urine output accurately is still a challenge in many children's hospitals. Yes, so, and I, I, I completely agree with that. And that and that anybody that says that, I think you take the aware data to them and say, listen, this is what we show, right? Right. We show these numbers. There's a beautiful supplemental table, and then the urine output data and study that Scott, or Dr. Sutherland, I believe it was Dr. Sutherland, um, published as well um, from the Aware Group, really does point out that it's important, at least in, in during a certain time period, to be able to accurately measure urine output. And I think going forward, uh, we won't have you know the one perfect biomarker. Right. That is probably not the right way to think about it. I would think about it more as an AKI biomarker composite, which is what Dr. Raj Basu talks about. Kind of, you know, think about like, you're looking at the blood gas, you have the pH, which represents something, you have the PCO2, PO2, they all represent different aspects of your uh, lung health, your vent uh, ventilation status. Similarly, we will probably have a composite, which looks at you know, your um, creatinine, which is a functional marker, NGAL would probably be an injury marker. You have urine output, which is, again, a, a functional marker. So, you know, you would have all of these things put together, and that would help us assess who falls into which phenotype of API. I think the, the two of us could have a lecture on this topic between... <laughs> and China, I was going to also comment, <laughs> you know, no, there's no... Uh, the biomarker for breast right. cancer, right? right. It's yeah. a series of biomarkers that allows you to individualize care. So I think you are spot on that. Yeah, uh, exactly the beauty right. of it's going to be, there's going to be a number of things that are going to help us accurately phenotype those AKI babies as well as children. And and, and, and the important thing too is, as you think, I think you'll see this coming out more and more too, excuse me, is um, the, you also, I will also refine it um, by disease state, right? So AKI is the big thing, but AKI in sepsis is going to be different than AKI in the PCICU, assuredly is different in the NICU, and even in certain states within the NICU or gestational age or so on and so forth. So you see us begin to refine these phenotypes also by disease um, and probably even the scoring systems. And so we have these really cool things that are, are fingertips with these uh EHRs and medical records that can identify all kinds of stuff um, and learning, machine learning and things like that. Um, of course, I'm saying that being the person that doesn't have a Twitter account. But. Yes. <laughs> Once again, <laughs> everybody's saying not related. You're all you're all thinking about it. But yes, yeah, so I think I, I completely agree. This is going to be a really fun time to begin to hone down on our phenotypes of all of our diseases, whether it's nephrotic syndrome, which I think is another one ripe. Oh, yes. With yeah. the, um, as, as, as mentioned earlier, with the presence of uh, all of these data sets and, and uh, biospecimens, our ability to be able to also look at that is it. But I got off track, sorry. That's a good segue to uh, my uh, talk at uh, the uh, in the session this morning, uh, Tamo, the uh, you know looking at different phenotypes of sepsis. So I uh, I really like some of the studies that uh, folks in the pediatric ICU have done. Uh, Dr. Hector Wong looking at these different phenotypes of sepsis and trying to identify who are the patients who fit into the Tamo uh, phenotype versus some of the other sepsis phenotypes, and then uh, using uh, appropriate uh, treatments for those. So um, again, uh, all sepsis is not the same, just like all AKI is not the same. So if we are able to identify which patients might benefit from uh, interventions like doing plasma paresis, then we should probably target our treatment for those specific patients instead of subjecting everyone uh, to uh, getting a central line in plasma paresis. So uh, I'm looking forward to uh, uh, you know, newer things like the Persevere 2 biomarkers. Uh, a lot of studies are being done on this um, by Dr. Hector Wong's group. 
And I'm hopeful that once these become more widely available, uh, we can identify who are the patients who will benefit from treatments like plasmapheresis and other interventions for sepsis. Uh, Daniel Pack spoke about medications, right? That was a very interesting talk. Yes, it was. Uh, uh, Dan is a pharmacist at Seattle Children's Hospital, and we are uh, blessed to have a wonderful uh, pharmacy team that helps us manage these uh, complicated, critically ill patients. Um, he uh, spoke about, you know, when uh, antibiotic therapy or antimicrobial stewardship in patients uh, who have acute kidney injury, who are receiving uh, extracorporeal therapies in the ICU. So uh, some of the key uh, things that he uh, emphasized was one, looking at the dose of CRRT that a patient is getting and making sure your antibiotics are appropriate for that dose of CRRT. we are often very quick to, you know, calling someone a treatment failure when uh, their infection is not responding. But is it that we are, uh, you know, is is the um, is the bacteria resistant to the antibiotic, or are we just not get giving them enough medication? So having uh, levels as uh, far as possible would be great uh, to manage these patients really well. He also mentioned this cool study where they used vancomycin in the CRRT fluids, kind of like how we do for um, peritoneal dialysis. It's almost like that where we have intraperitoneal antibiotics. So yeah, using uh, having vancomycin in the CRRT fluid where you know the patient is going to be exposed to a constant level uh, throughout and not, not worry about checking levels or having peaks and troughs. So that was a, a pretty cool idea. Yeah, that, that really blew my mind, actually. I was like, wow, why didn't we think of this? Why didn't anyone think of this? We do this for PD all the time. And there it is. I mean, and the, the elegance of that is what yeah, like, took my breath away. You don't have to check levels because you know exactly what you're delivering. So that was a that was a great talk, uh, and I believe there was some mention of uh, finding ways to do cephalosporins to level. Yeah, so the the there was a discussion in that, and um, as long as I've been going to CRT meetings and to critical care meetings, um, people have been banging the pots and pans about our ability to measure drug levels. Um, we, um, as everybody knows, sort of focused on the usual suspects and vancomycin and gentamicin and tobramycin and things like that, um, mostly focused on ones that um, have high degrees of nephrotoxicity for obvious reasons. Um, but, um, you know, he, I, we, he was asked in the Q&A session, and I think I asked him the question, if I remember right, um, was, you know, why, why don't we have the ability to measure these other drugs mm-hmm. in the ICU? that we know can save these children's lives. And the long and short of it was we need to bang harder on the pots and pans um, and sort of as clinicians really demand that we make this a priority. Um, I know right now to distinguish different types of cephalosporins, and this was part of the discussion, it's a, it's a, a, a it's a research. We need an HPLC. To yeah, say, yeah it's, a, it's a research endeavor with HPLC um, to do it. But I suspect with motivation, um, you know, we can do amazing things, right? We have new biomarkers of NGAL and so on and so forth that we can, we can drive the ship forward. Because I do think dosing on CRT and dosing in, in kids with uh, dynamic GFRs as their kidney function is both improving and decreasing um, to ensure our kids get adequate antibiotic coverage um, is, 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 is a critical point. Um, I also had the opportunity to go back and revisit AUC and MIC and, and those other sorts of things that <laughs> uh, <laughs> review periodically. So that was fun. That's another thing. If we have that data points, then we can go back to machine learning and, right. <laughs> and pre-program well, the dose each day without having to kind of guess at it. No, that's, that's exactly what we'd have the opportunity to do to limit the exposure. Um, and it, there's a hundred things that could be great with it, right? But ensuring our patients are getting the adequate amount of drug 
um, despite our therapies, which are good for some things, but obviously, you know, drug clearance and those sorts of things is something that comes with CRT. And so I, again, that's, that's one of the areas that um, is really important. Yeah. So talking about clearances, um, <laughs> there was a talk I, I about that. I tee that up for you, right? Yes. <laughs> Thank you for that. Yes. So yeah. there was this talk by David Ashkenazi about intoxicating substances. Um, so what were the highlights of what, what are the key takeaways? Well, so this was a tour de force. Um, and so what I would suggest is for anybody that's interested in learning, um, it is a, a solid 25 minute review on a very wide breadth of, in, of uh, intoxications and um, treatments that are available for it. Um, and he goes, uh, he started the talks with really important things like knowing what your drug volume of distribution is and how that impacts what your choices are, um, protein binding and how that can impact your ability to clear said offending agent and so on and so forth. Um, and, it, you know, some of his early work um, in different things, methotrexate and I believe carbamazepine as well, um, was in there and highlighted. Um, I think the critical point that I took away from it is obviously none of us are encyclopedic, um, but working with your pharmacy and or toxicology team to understand the kinetics of the drug that you're talking about and then what that means for your therapies is really an important point. Um, he also highlighted, and I think this is a very important group, I, I have saved on my computer as a favorite, which I can do, despite the Twitter thing, and um, it is the X-Trip group. X-Trip. Um, yeah, yeah, the X-Trip group is saved in my favorites bar, um, uh, and that group has wonderful uh, resources available, and he highlighted that at the end, which is one I think every fellow should legitimately have on their favorite bar um, as well. Uh, because that's that's a go-to resource. And so it's a great talk in terms of specifics. And he talked about not only hemodialysis, which still remains the mainstay for most uh, intoxications, um, but really cool things with albumin and plasmapheresis and this idea of what do you do with protein-bound drugs, which I think we've all come across a handful of times and probably handled in very different ways. Um, and also probably upset our pharmacy by using up all of the albumin in the place. Yeah. <laughs> These are very albumin intensive procedures, definitely. They are, they yeah. absolutely are. Um, I think those were really the highlights, but no, David, um, he always gives great talks, um, but this was um, from sort of start to finish a very, like I said, tour de force um, in terms of uh, principles and, and, and guiding things. And so I really enjoyed it. Absolutely. If you've not caught it, just go on and listen to it before it disappears from the uh, app. And uh, I, I think it was just an amazing review, as well as right. a great discussion at the end of it. Um, hypocalcemia, that was the other thing that I took away from that. Yeah, the, the, and I think that was a nice, um, one of the things I'll say, and this is editorializing a little bit, we talked about it before, but if, whether it makes it in the podcast or not, is I enjoyed the Q and A, right? So, I, yeah, it was like a panel discussion. It was, it was I mean, fun for all wait, of us. Wait. It felt so organic. Something happened in the cake at Q A, right? I think there was feedback through parts of it, but we didn't hear it on our end. So we're, I, okay. all we heard was from other individuals that there was some feedback, okay. sort of as part of the discussion. Okay, because uh, when I played it back, there was no problem at all. But I saw a lot of Twitter comments. It that was. Like, pretty freaky when it was happening it was like you were in like in this like weird nightmare situation where I could hear Kerry's voice like five times over with like a few seconds lag and I could hear, oh. you know I could hear every speaker multiple yeah. times over with like a few seconds lag it must have made somebody's bingo card right that should have been on the bingo card technical failure yes <laughs> but I did I did enjoy that that whole that ability to like get questions in the feed like we were talking about i think it opens up the opportunity for folks right. who want to go up and stand in front of the microphone um or wait in line because at the end you're running out of time i i i would almost um challenge the organizers of these conferences to make that something you can do during a lecture yeah. real time right like you can, everybody's got a phone so if they sure. You know, if they can send it in the message and it goes up to the moderator and the moderator has the questions at the end, I think that would be really cool. And uh, what was good was, you know, that 
other speakers could chime in on like it was not like a question was directed just to one person like everyone could chime in uh, on their experience about a particular question so and I, I think for a good discussion and I think the, the one of the take-home points that I should mention, because you brought up the issue with the calcium and the intoxications and those sorts of things, the critical point if you're going to do things in any extracorporeal therapy is to understand your protocols, but most importantly to understand when you change your or go off your protocols, what the implications are. And that's one of the implications often with high-dose CRT is that your protocols for calcium, you know, if you're a citrate person, your protocols for the calcium are largely derived around 2,000 per 1.73 meters squared or 30 mils per kilo or whatever you use in that area. And so if you're doing something different than that, you have to think about what the downstream consequences are. And that's just one example, but it's the same for protocols across the board. It's not that you always have to follow them. It's just understanding what the implications are if you go off of. And David, it just reminds me that uh, this is where you really need a team taking care right. of these complicated patients. Yeah. You know, I want a nephrologist that has the wisdom to look things up and to consult with others and to look at it as a team effort with the intensivist, right? We, we don't, right. It, it, particularly with intoxications, yeah. you know, if you've seen one, you've seen one and you have to just be humble about that. And I always, and that's what I tell folks too, that my trainees and things like that, my, um, I often talk to the toxicologists, um, the, you know, the poison control, the number yeah. control, and, and yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's the, that's always better than some of the, you know, we're always better as a team. As, as Bo Schembechler would say, the team, the team, the team. And he learned that from Woody. That was so, so good of him. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a great spot to try end the discussion tonight. Um, I just want everyone to give me like a one-liner of what they learned today. So, Sutha, I would say uh, my take-home message from today is that we need to move beyond assumptions and we need to measure and investigate uh, so that we can do the best job possible. My um, take-home yes. point from today is that we need to individualize our therapy, whether it's for KFIT or AKI or sepsis, one size does not fit all. I, I completely agree. That was that would have been something I would have said as well. Um, and uh, Dr. Madden beat me to the punch, uh, but I, I completely understand it. We spent, as I mentioned before, that we spent a lot of time uh, trying to say these things are problems and we've proven that point. And now it's moving forward to refining and understanding uh, the uh, predictors better of those problems so we can have positive trials in acute kidney injury and critical care nephrology um, and really either prevent or treat better um, AKI, uh, which the key will be early diagnosis and early recognition uh, long before the creatinine rises. My take-home point from today is, um, is you know, around resident and fellow so trainee wellness that you know to address that it's not just you know efforts on an individual basis, but also program, institutional, and even national ACGME-based uh, efforts. Everybody has to come together, create a village, and help each other out. It's, my take-home is that as we learn more about sort of molecular bases of diseases, no matter where they are. I think we're now getting to the point where we're really being um, closer to being able to really translate that to clinical practice and trying to take advantage of what we're learning from um, the insights that we learn about disease pathogenesis and what that means um, when we see our patients at the bedside. Uh, so my take home point is along Jackie's lines that really it can't be done by one team or one person, that it really takes everything from the basic science world to the studies being done in the clinic to the educational and, you know, wellness and burnout to really, um, you know, take these findings and um, bring it to the bedside and change patient outcomes. And now I have to think about renal angina and burnout angina and maybe K-cut Angina and put the challenge out that we need, um, <laughs> that we need our own term for this than uh, stealing the cardiologist. Carrie, you're going to give me angina just thinking about all that. <laughs> That's a lot of angina, folks. 
<laughs> so thank you all um, for a wonderful discussion. Thank you, uh, Charu, for um, helping uh, keep the conversation flowing today. Thank you. And I will um, be back with more questions for you all, hopefully in person at PAS 2022 in Denver. <laughs> And uh, yes. until then, stay safe and good night.